0: Draw me close and never let go and keep me there by your grace and by your power. It's a great song. It's a great prayer for us to be praying this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. You know, I was thinking as we worship today, it's, it's an amazing thing. That we come to this hour and we focus upon Him. We focus upon our songs being about Him and about His glory. We our songs being about us asking Him to do a work in our life. And, and then last night, we played together. You know, there's just something healthy about a church that loves one another so much that we can worship properly together and we can play properly together. That's healthy. Uh, that, that wasn't about worship last night, and that wasn't about church in that sense, but it was about a very important dimension, and that is fellowshipping together and playing together and enjoying one another. I, I watched after it was over. I mean, we have a hard time getting folks out of here on, after worship because they want to fellowship. But I didn't think anybody was going to go home last night. They stayed, and they stayed. They even, some of them helped clean up, which got it ready for today, and that was good. But I just, I'm just so grateful. Uh, that, that God has done such a work in our life that we just enjoy being together. Whether we're worshiping or whether we're playing or, or whatever, or studying the Word or studying the Truth Project, whatever it is, we just enjoy fellowship with one another. That's good, and that's healthy. Listen to what the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. You, you know it well. You've heard it a million times if you've been in church, but it's that next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me ask you a question. When I say the word righteousness, what comes to your mind? What, do you, what image do you conjure up? What do you think about? Some might say, well, when I think about righteousness, I think about God because He is a righteous God. And, and He is. That's important to understand that. It's a, it's a dimension of His holiness. He is a holy God, which makes Him totally other than us, but He's also an absolutely righteous God. Everything God does is righteous. Everything God thinks is righteous. Everything God professes or declares is righteous. And so to think about righteousness as being an attribute or a part of an attribute of God is absolutely right. Some of you might think about self-righteousness. When you hear the word righteous, you may think of somebody. Somebody that is always strutting and trying to act religious. And yet you know in their life there is a woeful disconnect with truth and reality. You might think about somebody who you know comes to church every Sunday, tucks their Bible under their arm, and, and wants everybody to see it. Maybe they bring a big Bible so everybody can see it, and, and they just walk around like everything is, is fine and great and perfect in their life, but you know that on Monday they're going to be out there, and they're going to be unfaithful to their wife or unfaithful to their husband. They're going to be at their job, and you've worked with them, and you know they're going to steal, and they're going to cheat, and you know that tax season is here, and they're going to try to twist every little thing they can and lie about what their real income is so that they can get more money in their own pocket. You just know that person. They look righteous. They act righteous one day a week, but the rest of the week, it's absolutely chaotic. It's absolutely a disconnect from what Christianity really is. You know, you might think about that. Both of those are images that could easily be conjured up in the mind about righteousness. I want to talk to you about righteousness this morning in a true and biblical sense. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying here in a very powerful, very powerful statement. Now we talked about how blessed are, the, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn over their sins and blessed are the meek as being our standing before God. That there is in those Beatitudes... A sense of how we approach God. We approach God poor in spirit. Lord, I have nothing to bring. I need you. We approach Him mourning over our sin. I am a sinner in need of your forgiveness, in need of your cleansing. We approach Him meekly, gently, humbly. And you have to do that to enter into the presence of God. I mean, that's very clear. In this beatitude... Jesus is still talking about our relationship with God, because they all do that in one way or another. But in this beatitude, there's a little bit of a twist. And I believe what he starts talking about here is some of the evidences that life exists in a person. Some of the evidences that spiritual life is a reality. How, how How do you say that, Bill? What do you mean, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for there is a... Evidence of life there? How do you get that? It just says they'll be satisfied. Well, you know, there's one thing that's very clear. Hungering and thirsting is a natural part of your life and my life. In about an hour or or less, if I don't get long-winded, in less time than that, we'll we'll leave here and all of us probably will say, What are we going to eat? I'm hungry. I haven't eaten since earlier this morning, or I haven't eaten at all this morning, and and I'm hungry. I need something to eat. You you say that because you're a living organism. You say that because there's life in your body. In a moment, after I've preached about five minutes, or maybe even right now, I'm going to get thirsty, and I'm going to take a swallow of water. I do that because I'm alive, and you get thirsty because you're alive. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness... Because that is a sign of life. My uh, son is on his way to a funeral this afternoon. He's going to read a letter that I wrote for the funeral because a dear friend died. I would imagine that at her children's home, uh, she has two daughters, and and at one of their homes, or maybe at at Betty's home, uh, people and friends are going to bring in food, and there's going to be a a mountain of food there. And and I I can guarantee you one thing. That food is not going to attract Betty at all. They could take it down to the funeral home in in Decatur, Georgia, and they could say, they could set it all around the coffin, and they could say, Betty, look how good this food is. And and she won't even move because there's no life in her. Same was true in the biblical account of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus in John chapter 11? Lazarus died. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Jesus loved Lazarus. And he died. They sent word to Jesus that he was sick, and they knew that Jesus had healed the sick over and over and over again. And so Mary and, and Martha, his sisters, sent word to Jesus. said, Jesus, come back. Lazarus is sick. You've healed others before. Come back and heal him. And he didn't go. He waited four days. in, the, in that four days, you know what happened? Lazarus, Lazarus died the first day. He was wrapped in grave clothes. An embalming procedure. And he was placed in the grave on a slab of stone. And a stone was rolled in front of the grave. Now, Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come back and heal him while he was still sick, but now he was dead. And I don't care what Mary and Martha did. They could go to the grave and they could say, Lazarus, here's your favorite food. Lazarus, here's water. Lazarus, here's some good Jerusalem wine. I mean, whatever they wanted to do. And nothing would appeal to Lazarus because Lazarus was dead. Dead. And dead people don't hunger and dead people don't Thirst. Now think about that a minute. Dead people don't hunger. Dead people don't thirst. But now, when Jesus came back and had him roll the stone away after four days, when and I love it was Martha's statement said, "Lord, we can't do that for now. He stinketh." King James Version. Now he's decayed. Now there's an odor, and if we roll the stone back, it will be horrible. Jesus said, "Just listen to me. Roll the stone back." They rolled the stone back. Jesus looked in the grave, prayed to the Father, said, Father, I, I ask you now to glorify yourself. I know you always hear me, but do what I'm about to say. And he looked into the grave, and he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I mean, people probably thought, what's he doing? Dead men don't come forth. Dead men don't have life. Dead men can't stand up. They can't walk. They can't do anything. And Lazarus, folks, has been dead for four days. Then all of a sudden in the door of the tomb, there appears something. It's white. Can't move very well because its its feet are all wrapped together with grave clothes, so it's just kind of doing this number, you know, kind of like the mummy or something. And then all of a sudden they realize... It's Lazarus' body. We buried it four days ago. We put it in the grave. That's Lazarus. Because See, something happened to Lazarus. The king of kings and the lord of lords and the lord of life had come to the edge of the tomb, come to the door of the tomb, shouted in and said, come forth. And immediately that which was dead was revived. Not revived. Was resurrected. That which was dead was now alive. And Jesus looked at them, at the people standing around. Can, can you imagine what they must have looked like? You know, gaping mouths. And he said, hey, What are you doing? Loose him and let him go. Untie him. Unbind him. He's got on dead man's clothes. He's not a dead man anymore. Take him off. And they said that Lazarus was alive. And they saw him alive. And they knew he was alive. And you know what, I don't know this, the scripture's not real, it's not, it's silent on this, but I have a feeling after being dead in the grave for four days, Lazarus came forth and said, where's the food? Where's the water? Man, I am hungry and I am thirsty because I am alive. I think Lazarus is the most vivid picture of the salvation experience in all the, all the scriptures. I, I think it's the clearest thing what Paul talked about and said. when Paul said, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God saved you. He could have said, God called your name. God said, Bill, come forth. Mike, come forth. Tom, come forth. And those who were dead came forth and And we're now alive. So Jesus says, quite clearly, Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness. Now, I think there's an element where he's talking about the hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. There's no doubt. He's not talking about hunger and thirst for self-righteousness. I think he's talking about a hunger and a thirst for who God is and what God is and what God's character is, but I think it's far greater than that. To understand righteousness, you have to understand there are two dimensions of righteousness in the Scripture. You might say two kinds of righteousness. There is what the theologians call imputed righteousness. We've talked about that many times. The choir sings about it beautifully. When they sing that song, which is, just happens to be my favorite anthem, you can sing it anytime, time, Beth. Uh, Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I stand. Alone, I stand. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is that sense when we come to faith in Christ, when we are converted, when we are redeemed, when we are saved, whatever word you want to use there, that when that happens, there is a magnificent thing that takes place, God imputes to us the perfect, absolute sinlessness, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And like a garment, like a robe, we put it on and we're clothed in it and it covers up everything that we are. All our filthy rags, all our deficiencies, all of our sins, they're covered by the righteousness of Christ. So that when we stand before God in our positional stance, if you will, we stand before God and God sees us in the righteousness of Christ. That's why we can go into His presence. We have to hunger and thirst after that kind of righteousness to be saved. But there's another dimension of righteousness that I think Jesus is talking about here. It's not imputed righteousness. but It's what I call practical righteousness. Not imputed, which God declares, which God gives as a gift. But it's practical righteousness. Now I want you to understand this. You cannot have practical righteousness without imputed righteousness. Unless God has done a work in your life and and clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, you cannot have practical righteousness. What is practical righteousness? Well, it's the working out of that which has been imputed to you. It's the living out of your faith. It's the living out of the gospel truth. It's the demonstration of the power of Christ's righteousness in your life. It's a progressive thing. It's a growing thing. The the imputed righteousness is instantaneous. The, the, The practical righteousness requires some working out. It requires some hungering. It demands some thirsting by the believer. It's not automatic. I wish it were. I wish that when God saved us, I wish that when God saved me, Not worried about you, I just wish you had done this with me. That he said, okay, Bill, from now on, you will live perfectly. You never have a bad thought, you'll never be angry, you'll treat your wife beautifully, you'll treat your kids with absolute velvet gloves. You will will love the church like you ought to love the church. You'll love the lost like you ought to love the lost. I mean, you'll never have a moment, Bill, where you ever fail. You are now a perfect individual in a practical sense of the word. Boy, I wish he had done that. But he didn't. Because the Christian life is a life of growth. Righteousness is a life of growth. And so he says, I... I I, I want you to know, blessed are those who hunger, whose bellies need to be filled, spiritually speaking, and thirst, whose throats are parched and and dry and need the righteousness of Christ to, to lubricate it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. for They will be satisfied because they are alive. You know, we talked last week about how Jesus' great, great desire in this sermon is to contrast the Pharisees with the believer. To contrast heart religion with legalism. I would say to contrast true righteousness with legalism. Legalism is a false righteousness. Legalism is a self-righteousness. Legalism is a, I'll try to do my best and earn favor with God, but I don't want to do it on God's terms. I don't want to come to Christ as Lord. I don't want Him giving me His will in my life and my will submitting to Him. Don't want all that. I I just want to be good. And I want everybody to see it. So we strut around like we really are something. Paul says, Jesus says, I want you to understand, this righteousness is a gift from God that you hunger for, you thirst after, and it begins to work itself out in your life. We could call this sanctification because it has to do with that progressive, growing, maturing, developing in Christ Jesus. David expressed that in the passage Jeff read earlier in, in Psalm 119. Hear how he starts. He says, My soul cleaves to the dust. And let me give you the Haynes translation of that. My soul is about as low as a snake's belly. I'm I'm just I'm I'm down, I'm I'm hurting, I'm I'm a sinner. I I, I bow before you. I, I get as low as I can in your presence, Lord. My soul cleaves to the dust, but then he says, revive me according to your word. See, it's the word of God that will revive us. It's not our own doing, it's not our own efforts, it's not our own deeds. It's the word of God. Revive me according to your word. I've told of my ways. That is, I've made confession to you, O Lord. I've confessed my sins and you've answered me. Now teach me your statutes. Teach me your way of life. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on all your wonders. When's the last time you meditated on the wonders of God? So what do you mean? Well, just in Scripture. When's the last time you meditated on him parting the Red Sea? or or him destroying the earth with flood, but rescuing Noah and his sons and their wives and Noah's wife on that ark with the animals, you know. We still sometimes treat that as though it's some kind of childhood fairy tale. Folks, that's truth from God. That is a wonder of God that we ought to meditate on and, and just take into our life. When's the last time you meditated on the wonder of God that Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. Well, that's a wonder. you realize you were like Lazarus, spiritually speaking? You were, to use the southern terminology, dead as a doornail? You were were dead spiritually, completely, and totally. And wonder of wonders, the Spirit of God has made you alive in Christ Jesus? Wow! That is a wonder. When's the last time you meditated on what God has done in your life in salvation? You can go on and on just from scriptural examples, but when's the last time you meditated on wonders He's doing in your life today? Protecting you, watching over you, caring for you, answering prayer ministering in your life by His Holy Spirit. What do you just meditate? You say, what do you mean meditate, Bill? I mean just thought about them constantly. Just, just turn them over and over and over. You know the, the, the word meditate there is a word that could literally be used to describe what a cow does to its cud. When it chews its cud, it swallows it. It brings it back up, chews it a while, swallows it again, brings it back up, chews it a while. That's a real pleasant thought just before lunch, isn't it? We do it, we're sick. A cow does it, he's doing the natural thing. Uh, She's doing the natural thing. It's doing the natural thing. I'm not a farmer. But the meditating, reading it, letting it settle a bit, bringing it back up, reading it again, thinking about it again, letting it settle a little bit, bringing it back. I mean, when is the last time you meditated on the wonders that God has done in your life? Folks, it'll change your life think about the wonders of God. That's what David says here. I'm, I'm getting too long here. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law, your word. I have chosen the faithful way. I've chosen to be obedient. i place placed your ordinances before me. That is, I've got your word before me. I'm reading it. I'm studying it. I cling to your testimonies. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Wow. David is saying, listen, I hunger and I thirst after righteousness. I hunger and thirst for your word, your ordinances, your statutes, your truth, to be built into my life in such a way that it changes me, and it's built in in such a way that there is a practical righteousness that begins to work itself out, that demonstrates who I belong to. That demonstrates I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. One last thing. When the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, talked about the armor. Remember the armor, the spiritual armor? talked about, you know, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and the belt of truth. And he talked about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and the shield of faith. All of those very important, very important pieces of armor. But there's one more that was central to all of it. It was the breastplate of righteousness. And there he's talking about practical righteousness, I believe. Not just imputed Imputed has to come first. But once there's imputed righteousness, once there's a, a relationship with Christ, there's this practical righteousness that will perfect, protect it. Now, I wonder why Paul said that the breastplate is righteous. Why didn't he say the breastplate is truth? Why did he say the breastplate is the Word of God? Why didn't he say the breastplate is, the, is salvation? He said the breastplate of righteousness. See, Paul was chained to the Praetorian Guard at that time, and they wore all this Roman armor from head to toe. Everything he describes and and makes an analogy to the Christian life is what he saw every day when those Roman guards that were guarding him. And he looked at that breastplate, and he said, wow. What does that breastplate guard against? Well, one thing it guards against is the Arrows that come from the enemy. It guards against darts, fiery darts that are fired from the enemy. And, and, and you may miss it with a shield, but if it gets past the shield and it hits your breast it, with an attempt to destroy the very center of your body, the breastplate protects it. You know, Satan has some arrows. Satan has some fiery darts, Temptations accusations things that would cause us to would cause us to, to stumble and fall and, and not be able to compete in the battle and 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 Paul says you know in the christian life what that breastplate does for that soldier protecting the very midsection of his body protecting all the vital organs of his life that's what righteousness does for you and me it gives us protection from all satan's fiery darts and arrows if a Roman soldier neglects the care of his armor especially the breastplate gets chinks in it just a little openings no big deal just a a little opening it's not solid but hey He's got to hit me right here. He's got all this other space He might hit me, and this little chink's no big deal. But then maybe there's another little chink over here. Maybe there's one up here. You know, you get the picture. All Satan's got to do is pull back his fiery dart or his bow and shoot his arrow, and bam, it hits that chink. The breastplate is of no value whatsoever. I think this righteousness that he's talking about is all that will protect us all that will protect us from the attack of the enemy from temptations from accusations from attempts to get us to take our eyes off of christ and put our eyes on ourself and on circumstances and when he gets us to do that when when a, when an arrow hits the breastplate and penetrates the breastplate Nothing else matters, folks. Nothing else matters. It's all about me at that point, because I'm hurting. Paul says the breastplate is righteousness, practical righteousness, lived out righteousness. And when you let the chink get there, that is you, when the chink comes, you've accepted, if you will, and I'll use this term relatively, a little sin. Just a little sin. Not a big one, just just something small and, you know, everybody does it. It doesn't matter. Everybody does it. And, and I'm no different from everybody else. And, and there are Christians who do it, and I, I'm fine, you know. That's a chink in the armor. David said in Psalm 19, he said, Lord, protect your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let them rule over me. Hmm presumptuous sin. What in the world is that? I think it's a presumptuous sin is one that just presumes upon the grace of God. Oh, yeah, I did that, but God will forgive me. Oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. We start making excuses like that. Even though, folks, that is a truth, it's a presumptuous sin. Attitude upon the truth of God, and it puts that chink there that gives Satan a a place to place his darts to fiery arrows and penetrate you and bring you tumbling down. Blessed are those who hunger, and blessed are those who thirst for righteousness they shall be satisfied it's a mark of life it's a desire to be like Christ you say Bill we can never do that you're right I'll never be like Christ in this life but you know what I sure would like to be I sure do want to be That's what he's talking about here. You may not attain, you will not attain it in this life perfectly. Friend, once you lose the thirst, once you lose the hunger, or if you don't have that, there's every reason to say, do I have the imputed righteousness? Do I have that which he's all, which he has given me? That is to now be worked out, and I want to see it worked out. I passionately want it as a part of my life. See, the Christian life's not passive. The Christian life is not, oh, just let go and let God. You know? Christian life is active. It's active because you're alive. It's active because there's spiritual hunger. There's active, it's active because there's spiritual thirst because Christ put it there. You know, the, the old saying, you know, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Or heard somebody say one time, no, but you can feed him salt. Make him thirsty. I believe God feeds us spiritual salt when we belong to Him. He says, man, there's there's, there's the... There's the reality in your life. You you hunger after me. You hunger after my character. You hunger after Christ's likeness. You hunger after presenting a strong witness. You hunger after being what God has called you to be. You thirst to be like Christ. All the while knowing you'll never achieve it in this life. But you never give up. You never give up. You never get self-satisfied. Ever. 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 Pray with me. Father, Jesus sure does meddle a lot in these Beatitudes. Boy, he doesn't doesn't mince words. He doesn't doesn't sugarcoat it. He says this the way it is. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Lord, give us salt. Make us thirsty for your water, your living water. Make us hunger, O oh Lord, for your word and for your truth and for your righteousness that's found in your word and your truth. Oh Father, do your work in our lives today.